So this morning we're going to go ahead and continue in our series as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are on our 23rd session today, and we're going uh, we're roughly about a half a chapter a week. We're making our way through it. It's been good for you guys? You guys been getting something out of it? I know I've been getting something out of it. I'm always amazed that I'm the one supposed to be up here teaching it, but how much I get out of it when I'm preaching as I'm studying and getting... For, matter of fact, you're going to see some stuff today that I'm going to talk about that I never even noticed before until yesterday as I was going through this and preparing my message. But today we're going over uh, chapter 13 in the book of 1 Corinthians. You guys, everybody know, familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13? You've heard about it. This is the one people refer to as the love chapter. And uh, uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. But before we get started, as we're looking at love and what love is, I want to I tell you a story that I heard from one of the pastors from Praise Chapel. And, and uh, uh, what it was is the modern-day version of the story of the Good Samaritan. And it goes something like this. A man was going down the Martin Luther King Boulevard in South Central one evening, and he was attacked by a group of robbers. The Praise Chapel, they're from L.A., so this is where the story is based. So he was attacked by a group of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a Christian was going down the road, and when he saw him, assuming he was a drunken homeless man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a local city council member, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a black Muslim, headed to a late dinner during the fast of Ramadan, came near him, and when she saw him, she was moved with pity, and she went to him and called 911. And when the ambulance arrived, she jumped with him as the paramedics rushed him to the hospital, and the doctors raced him into trauma surgery and saved him. And the next day, she took out her credit card and said to the staff, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. I love this story because, one, it brings the Good Samaritan into our perspective, the story of the Good Samaritan, but it also begins to show us what love really looks like. Because all too often, and unfortunately even in the church, we get this idea of we only love people who we agree with. We only love people who look like us, that, that think the same things in us. And, and, if, and if, if somebody is somebody we don't agree with, then instead we're going to yell and scream insults at them instead of show them love. This is what love looks like. It was Jonathan Swift, Jonathan Swift, the satirical author, oh man, I'm going to have one of those days today, I can feel it, author of Gulliver's Travels, who said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. That's a sad state. It's a sad thing because as Christians, love is the cornerstone of our religion. It is the whole reason that we are It's because he loved. The commandments can all be summed up by what? Love God, love your neighbor. As a matter of fact, all the commandments, if you'll just love God and love your neighbor, just by doing that, you'll fulfill all the other commandments. Because if you love God, you're not going to put something else in front of him, amen? And if you love your neighbor, you're not going to try to steal his wife, amen? Jesus said that we're to be known by our love. That should be our calling card. That should be a, I mean, when people walk by us, they should be like, Hugo, did you just get some love on me? I think you just got some love on me. I mean, that's how, that's how we should be known by our love. In this chapter, what we're going to go through today, it's known as the love chapter. And many a preacher, including myself, has preached on love and, and used this chapter as the driving text, and it talks about what love is and what it looks like and the importance of Christian love. 
But I began to, as I studied this, I realized this isn't a standalone passage. This isn't just a random passage about love, although we can still learn much when viewed in that way. When it's taught that way, we can still learn much. But this passage was written in the context of the problems the Corinthian church was facing. They were dealing with people that were just concerned with themselves and not with others. And coming out of the last few chapters, we're seeing that it was actually the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit that spurred this, and the abuse of the authority, and the creation of cliques, right? That's what this all things have been about. Paul has been, the message of this entire letter is Paul preaching unity. And love drives unity. The driving force that causes Christian believers to come together in unity is love. That's the whole reason we do it, because we love God, and we love one another, or that should be the reason, amen? But we're going to see as Paul begins ministering this morning that without love, really everything else is worth nothing. You know, the, the lights and the projector and the, the building and the air conditioning and, and the, the nice cushy chairs. By the way, you guys should probably be ready. At some point, we're getting less comfortable chairs. Not because I don't love you, but because they're smaller and I can fit more in here and we're going to run out of room. But that's a side note. But, uh, <laughs> but none of that stuff means anything without love. If we're not going to come in here and love God and, one love, and love one another, what's the point? Why should we even come in here? The whole purpose of this church is to build a family and a community that wants to reach out into this community because we love them, even if we don't know them. Actually, even, even better, even if we do know them, we're still going to love them. Amen? But when we come in without love, the whole focus is on ourselves. Look at me, look at me. And what happens is the focus is definitely not others, and it's certainly not on God. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our head as we continue in the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your great love. I pray that our eyes would be open this morning, Father, that we would receive the Word that you have for us, that it would accomplish in our heart what you've purposed it to accomplish. And Father, I just thank you for growth in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How many know that, that uh, speaking in tongues is a good thing? It's one of the gifts of the Spirit. God will use that one in your personal life for prayer, but he can also use that as a ministry to the body as long as there's an interpreter and it's done in order. And the, the speaking in tongues is the gift of God to all people. But Paul isn't just talking about the, uh, the gift of, of tongues here. He's also talking about the tongues of men. That means just everyday intelligible speech. And the, the reality is, is that ministering to, to the church, whether it be through the gifts of the Holy Spirit or just like I am up here today, just teaching and preaching and, and regular words that we can all understand, at least when I don't slur my words and mispronounce stuff, you can usually understand what I'm saying. But the, the, it's a great thing, and it's a good thing. The church needs it, and I tell you what, I've been blessed. I've been incredibly blessed by the men that I've sat underneath and the men and women that I've heard preach and speak the Word of God, and, and it's a blessing to me. And I hope that you are also blessed as, as God gives me words to speak to you, that you are blessed as well. But the truth is, it's the intent or the heart attitude behind the speakers that can make a great difference. And that doesn't matter if it's in, 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 in regular speech or, in, or speaking in tongues. If the person getting up here is just up here to stroke their own ego, ego if they're up here, 
is America. We stroke our eagles. So <laughs> if a person is just up here to stroke their own ego, if they're up here to, to just look famous or have people look at them and or recognize them in the street, or for any of those, or, to, or if someone's up here using the gifts of the Spirit and they're just trying to look more spiritual so people look at them, then, then it's, they're missing the point. They're missing out on what God is trying to do, which is build up the church, not the person that is speaking. The reality is, is that speaking, whether in tongues or with regular languages, without love, produces little for anybody. And speaking in tongues, particularly without love, is just making a crazy noise. Have any of you guys ever had a birthday party for your kids and someone that obviously hates you brings your kid a gift that makes noise? <laughs> Those gifts that they come in and you're just like, what were you thinking? Like, you don't want to be rude, but you almost just want to tell them to take it back. And you know what the worst part is, is like, I know there are specific examples in my life where where people have bought my kids stuff that makes noise. I can't remember a single one. It was so bad that I blocked it out of my memories. (laughs) Like, I can't remember a single one. I just know that it happened. I hate because it's just, especially instrument. Anybody ever have a kid want to play an instrument? Oh, man. Blake, is he out here? No, he must be back there helping out in the kids' room. Blake is so upset with me because I won't buy him an acoustic drum set. And actually, now he's, he's pretty good back here in the drums, right? He's not, he's not half bad. But even still, he's not getting an acoustic drum set <laughs> because we're not putting one in my house. I'm like, you can bang on buckets or something. Or your, your bed so it's quiet. So we went ahead and, and, and we got him an electric drum set. And even at the house, we, we had him one for a while. And, and uh, don't be fooled by that. Even though it's not acoustic, it's still loud when they're banging on those stupid things. There's no many times you're trying to watch TV downstairs. He's upstairs in a completely different room. And you're just like, Blake, knock it off. You're like, I'm always like, Blake, you need to practice. And then when you practice, I'm like, Blake, knock it off. I'm trying to watch TV. It's very, some tension going on there. But particularly when he first started, or like when my girls, I think one of them was trying to try to learn to play the flute. And I can even remember my life, there was a point when I wanted to learn to play the, uh, the trumpet. And that didn't work out because there were too many people playing the trumpet. So I got a French horn. And have you ever seen one of those? Those things are big and loud. And, and uh, uh, the, the bell on them, at least when I was little, the bell I remember being huge. Maybe it's not that big, but it's, that's what I remember. I was young. And man, I would be playing that, and, and I, have to know, I know what my parents felt at the time, because it was, it was just noise. There was no music. There was no noise. You know? And there will come a time when, when someone playing that, you know, it sounds good. You're like, all right, this is nice to listen to. But what Paul's talking about here, this noisy gong or clanging cymbal, it's like when your kid first starts learning and it just sounds like somebody's beating a cat with a baby. You ever heard that, that noise? And it's, it's awful. That's what Paul's talking about. It's worth nothing. It's worth, it's just noise. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't build anybody up. And the situation really just becomes a, look at me, look at me. Look what I can do. <laughs> you guys, most of you guys probably don't know, but there's a terrible, oh no, it's a Saturday Night Lights give, right? <laughs> Saturday Night Lights give. <sighs> look at me, look, look what I can do, look what I can That's what it looks like, that little kid on, on Mad TV. It's the sole selfish purpose to build the speaker up, the one that's up in front. And it only just creates distraction and chaos. It doesn't actually build up the church. 
And he doesn't start there. It's not just teaching and speaking in tongues, but he says in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. See, it's not this just speaking that's problematic. But even if you operate in one of the greater gifts, if you're not doing it out of love, even though you may have great power of God flowing through you, Paul says that you're nothing. If you're not doing it with an attitude of heart of love, then you're nothing. That it, does, it accomplishes nothing for you. And why is that? Well, one, I think, is if you don't have love, if you're not operating out of love, God might give you a, a, a something, a word for somebody, and you might not even act on it. You're like, oh, there's just not enough people around here to hear me, so I'll just, I'll just wait till later. I don't, we don't even operate unless people can see us if we're not doing it out of love, if it's just really love for self. And these greater gifts here he's talking about is gifts of prophecy, words of knowledge, words of, words of so prophecy and words of uh, knowledge and wisdom, or the supernatural natural gift of faith to remove mountains. That's what he's talking about here. And Jesus actually warned of this. This isn't new to Paul. <laughs> he said this, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 1 through 2, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, And when you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If you're doing it just for your own benefit to be seen by others, Paul says you're nothing. So then the question is, are you saying that even if I speak prophetically, but I don't have love, then my prophetic words account to nothing for me? Let me tell you a story in John eleven forty nine through 53. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. This was a man that prophesied under the power of God who wasn't walking with God. He was one of those hypocrites that Jesus was talking about. They had made plans to put him to death. So yes, the power of God can flow through you, and you still receive nothing from it. The reality is, is even if you could stand up with the amount of faith, with that supernatural faith to, to, to have turned Hurricane Harvey on a different path, if you didn't do it from love, it would be nothing to your account. I thank God that, that, that God might still work through you and make a difference in someone else's life, but it's not going to do anything for you. Because Paul says, without love, you are nothing, no matter how great your accomplishments are. And then he continues on. He doesn't stop there. In verse 3, he says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love can cause you to do incredible things for people. It'll cause you to to even put yourself in harm's way for another 
if love is the driving force in your life. In 1987, there was a horrific plane that crashed, a horrific plane crash that went down in Michigan, and there was no survivors. I think there was like 140-something people died, and there was only one survivor, sorry. One survivor was a little girl, and her name was Cecilia. And it's believed that the reason she survived the crash is because as the plane was going down, the mother unbuckled her seatbelt and went over to her daughters and wrapped her body around her daughters. And when the plane crashed, the mother passed away, but they heard the whimpering of a child, and they were able to rescue her. And uh, she, she was pretty hurt, but she survived because her mom, the love from her mom, drove her to wrap her body around her daughter and to take the brunt of the accident when she went down. Love will cause you to do amazing things, and some people even give up their life for another because of love. And any parent in this room knows of the sacrifices that you make to make sure that your kids are taken care of, even though most of them don't realize it, even though they think that their life is worse than ever. And, and you know, all my friends have something else. But you, you give up much so that they can have what they have. But the truth is, is that if any of this is done without, I mean, that's as parents, that's why we do it, because we love them. But if you do it without love, if you do it because you want to make sure that somebody sees you do it, then you gain nothing. You get Even giving your life for somebody, if done selfishly, means you gain nothing. That's why Paul, when he's referring to this love, he's, he's referring to real love, biblical love. The, 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 the uh, <clears throat> Greek word that's used here is agape, which is that self-sacrificing. I've heard people describe it as God love. It's the kind of love that God has for us. That kind of love is what Paul's talking about. And that kind of love is a response to Christ's love for us. And it's a love that's not manipulative, and it's a love that has no ulterior motives. If someone were to stand up for somebody on the street just because video cameras are rolling and they want that fame, that's not what he's talking about. It gains them nothing. Or when somebody, particularly we see it today, right? That's why a lot of people are mad at the whole capitalist society. is because there are people that manipulate the system. And one of the things that, that, that these, these men and women do is they, they donate money as a tax credit. They're not doing it out of love. They're doing it for a tax break. It gains them nothing. Much better would they do to give out of love because they, they, they cared about something and wanted to be a part of that and to take the tax credit. That's okay. There's not a problem with taking the tax If you give, take the tax credit, but it's the motive behind what you're doing. Amen? This is the problem that we have today is we say we act in love, but we're not really acting in love. Everything that we do is to, to gain something for ourselves. We ask, what will it get us if we give this? If I buy my kids gifts, will they love me more? Matter of fact, we see that all the time with parents now. Parents try to become their kids' friends instead of their parent because they want their, their kids to love them more. And then we find out that actually it's just hurting the kids. They're not being trained. They're not learning how to live in this world. But what about if I rub my wife's feet or her back? What will I get out of that? That's an ulterior motive when we go down that direction. Or if I give someone something or some uh, uh, money to the needy just to make myself feel better. You know, I did something bad today, so I'm going to do my good deed to make up for it. You gain nothing. 
And I hope you're starting to see a theme here, that anything done without love means that we're worth nothing, we gain nothing. It's the attitude of our heart that makes all of the difference. Now, I know we do things a little bit different now. I usually have some of the guys receiving the offering, but when I used to be the one receiving the offering uh, regularly, one of the things I often said is that when, when, when you're giving, if you're giving out of a sense of obligation, if you're giving out of a sense of duty, if you're, you might as well not do it. You're doing it wrong. We don't give out of a sense of duty. We're obedient not because we're afraid of punishment. We're obedient not because you know, it's, 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 a, it's a spiritual checkbox but we're obedient because of his great love for us. How could we not respond in like manner when he gave us everything? And when you give from that attitude, an attitude of love, then you begin to see the gains in your life. You begin to see that you reap what you sow. And you get great benefit from serving in his kingdom. And when you operate in the kingdom with love, not only does it benefit the king, this is the crazy thing about it, it's when you operate selfishly, it benefits nobody. But if you operate in love to benefit the kingdom, to benefit the body, to benefit somebody else, then in return, you're going to benefit yourself. Amen? It's kind of interesting and strange to think that when our goal is to puff up and lift up ourselves, we gain nothing. But if when our goal is to build the church in the body of Christ, and we gain everything. That's why Jesus said the, the last will be first. Amen? And then he goes on in verse 4 through 6. Love is patient. We're going to begin to describe what love actually looks like, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. This is a picture of love, what love actually looks like. First, he says love is patient. That means that, that love doesn't snap at somebody when things aren't going right. It does not throw people to the wayside if they're not moving fast enough or they don't meet your expectations, which are probably unreasonable anyway. It's the opposite of short-tempered. Patience, sometimes translated in the Bible as long-suffering or slow to anger, is one of the attributes of God. That means you have it because you were made in the image of God. When you are born again, you have that new spirit. That means you have patience. You can say, but that's just not me. I'm not a patient person. So it doesn't, it doesn't envy that. We find out in the Old Testament, talking about uh, uh, coveting, that we wouldn't even know that was a bad thing. But if you love someone, that's why all the, 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 the law is summed up in those love God and love yourself. And you're not going to want what they have. Particularly, envy is, one of the, is, is even worse than just wanting because envy is basically, if I can't have it, then they can't have it. For the Corinthian church, this was important because right now, everybody envied everybody else who was, who was speaking in tongues. Apparently, speaking in tongues was the big thing of the day. Everybody wanted to do that, and they were all envying the, the ability to want to speak in tongues, but, but Paul says love doesn't envy. Actually, love rejoices in the varieties of the gifts that are used to build up the body. He says love does not boast. That means you don't gloat over, some, over having something that somebody else doesn't. You don't rub it in their face. Love is not about putting somebody down to build yourself up. It's not arrogant, but instead it's, it's humble. 
That means it doesn't, love does not allow us to consider ourselves more valuable than somebody else. Matter of fact, if you could just get that paradigm shift in your head, your whole life would be lived a completely different way and you'd begin to see even a difference around you as you affect others. If you begin to see that everybody else is more important than myself and you live your life in that way, you will see a paradigm shift in your life. And if we could get everybody to live like that, I would just settle for the church starting with everybody to live like that. We would see a difference in the communities and where we live. And then as we begin to see people looking at what we have and wanting it and being drawn in by the love of God, and as they get saved and they can change that that paradigm shift, then we're going to see a completely different country, even the world. If we could just get people to make that switch, everybody else is more important than myself. But the problem is from day one, we're taught to look out for number one. We're taught to look out for ourselves, make sure that you're happy before anybody else. And the truth is that just leads to everybody having a miserable life. And then he says, love is not rude. That means it's uplifting. That means we never humiliate others. We never put them down. We never try to hurt them. Love does not insist on its own way. Like we were just talking about, love is more concerned with others than itself. And it looks out for the best interest of others rather than itself. And then it says love is not irritable. That means it doesn't get irritated at other things. That means you, it, you have some grace. You, you exercise some patience. See, that's the thing about operating in love. It doesn't mean people won't do irritating things. Lord knows they will. But it's how you react to those things and how you interact with the people that are doing them. And the funny thing is, is that if you'll act in love, you may have an impact on their lives that changes how they live as well. And then it says, love is not resentful. That means it doesn't keep a record of wrongdoing. It means that it forgives. It means that it's not a historian. You ever got in a fight with somebody, particularly this happens in marriages, where one or the other person brings up everything you ever did since you were three years old? You're like, I thought we talked about that. I mean, one of us becomes a historian in every fight. Love is not a historian. It's not resentful. It doesn't think back. This is the attitude of God towards us. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is not counting our... That didn't mean we didn't have trespasses. We definitely had trespasses. But he wasn't counting them to ourselves. And then he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We don't rejoice when others get theirs. You know, that's one of the things that, uh, man, we see so often. We, we, we want to be happy when somebody else hurts, like, oh, they deserved it. Oh, they, they, they got what's coming to them. But the truth is, is that these people are loved by God, just like you and I. We should hurt when they're hurt, not rejoice. And then it says, but instead it rejoices the truth. Love rejoices with the fact that Jesus died for all and all can come to salvation. It rejoices with that truth that, that, that salvation and restoration and reconciliation and wholeness is available to all people, even if they're irritating, even if they drive you crazy, even if they did something to hurt you. Love changes how we behave love's not going to change how other people it's how we behave when people act towards us amen but that's what love looks like and it doesn't look like what we're being taught and what we're teaching our children today that's for sure 
In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, he goes on and says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Did you know that love will take the weight of the world off of someone's shoulder and bear it on itself? And it'll endure hurt even when it's hard. It says love believes and hopes as well because love causes you to believe in somebody even when it seems like there's no hope. Love is what will cause you to stick around and lift someone up and encourage somebody, even when it seems like nothing's going to change, that there's nothing that's, that's ever going to, to grow. There's nothing that's going to come of this. And then he says, love endures all things. The enduring is the important part, because sometimes it's hard when people are irritating. It's hard when they're hurting you left and right. It's hard when people are just mean and rude and nasty, but we're still called to love them and to endure and just rely on that, that hope that something will change. and They'll have the opportunity to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit and hear about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Because I know it's true for me and I'm not unique that I'm not the same person that I used to be, but somebody endured. Somebody kept praying for me. Somebody kept speaking to me and telling me about Jesus, even when I told them to go shove it, even when I told them I didn't want to hear it, even when I, I looked at them and what they were doing and, and went ahead and just did whatever I wanted to do, even when I was super selfish. You know, I remember looking back in my life, and, and uh, my, my mom used to tell me that I was I used to get so mad when she told me I was selfish. Because I didn't see it. I thought she was crazy. I look back now and I'm like, man, she was being nice. But my mom endured. My family endured and people prayed for me. My pastor endured when he first met me. And I didn't want anything to do with the church. Because there was hope that my life would be changed by the love of God. Love is willing to endure whatever it takes. It presses through all, through all trials, through all hardships, through all difficulties. And believers operating in love hang on when the going gets tough. Operating in love is what allows you to, to press on and fight for your marriage. It's what allows you to, to continue trusting God despite setbacks and hardships. And it's what lets you continue to serve God even though you're afraid or you're in great times of sorrow. It's what lets you keep going. And when a, when a believer truly perseveres while operating out of love, there is nothing that they can accomplish in Christ. Amen? In verse 8, it says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So now Paul's going to continue on. He just talked about what love looks like, but he begins to share a little bit what's going to be happening as the church matures. One, we have to understand that, that the gifts of the Spirit aren't going to be around always. There is a point, he actually says when it is, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But he says that, that all these gifts, prophecies, tongues, knowledge, that they're all going to pass away because there's not going to be a need for them in heaven. There won't be a need for wisdom or prophecy because we'll already know 
And we won't need faith because we'll already have... You don't have to, to have faith for healing when you get to heaven and you're already healed. You don't have to have faith because all of those, everything that we've had faith for today on earth will be fully realized in heaven. On earth, nothing is perfect. On earth, things are on the side and see things are messed up. And it's not just with people in the political climate where we see storms coming up more regularly, earthquakes and all this. This world is literally falling apart. The scripture says that, that the earth actually is groaning, waiting, eager for Christ to come back because it's tired of being broken too. But no matter how much people know, we're only going to know a little. Even a word from God that gives us increased knowledge or a prophetic word or a word of wisdom, it's an increase, but it's still not everything. It still comes up short. No matter how much prophecy it given, it still only reveals a little. And it's not until Jesus' return that everything will be made perfect and complete. Now, there's some argument over what this means here. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, and, and I believe it means when Jesus returns. Some have argued, no, that, that means that that's when the Bible came. You know, when the, I guess the, the, the 66 canonical books of the Bible were put together, that's what it was talking about. But if you look at verse 12, it talks about being fully known, being seen in a, a mere face-to-face and we're going to get to that in a second. But if you look at these scriptures that he's talking about, it doesn't make sense that he would be talking about just the Bible coming because that would mean that right now we would fully know that we were complete. But as we all know, a quick look around the room shows that we're not. There's still problems. I believe what he's saying when the perfect comes, referring to when Jesus Christ returns. Then yeah, we're not going to need tongues. We're not going to need prophecy. We're not going to need wisdom. We're not going to need the, the gift of faith or gift of, gift, gift of faith. The gift of faith. We're not going to need the, the, the gift of generosity. We're not going to need the gift of helps or the gift of administration. We're not going to need uh, prophets, pastors, teachers, and apostles. Because it'll be complete. And at that time. All these gifts of the Spirit, they're going to disappear. Yet love, love is going to continue. It's the one thing that's not going to end because love is the very essence of who God is. And 1 John verse 4, 8 and in verse 16, you'll see it twice. It says, God is love. And it's God's love for us that caused Him to reach out to an undeserving and an underserving people. Even though we didn't deserve it, his love reached out. And his love saved people, and it's going to bring us into his kingdom to live with him forever. The gifts, they will pass away one day, but his love never will. And the entire kingdom of heaven is built based upon his love. Then he goes on into verse 11. I'm going to try to pick it up here a little bit. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You know, this is another one of those scriptures that I've preached with, I've used, and uh, I've always preached it out of context, to be honest. Now, I think we can still glean a lot from this if you take it as an individual verse, because it's true, we need to grow up, right? And that's what it's talking about is growth here. But Paul's not actually talking about individual believers' growth here. Did you know that? If you take this in the context of what we're talking about, right, when the perfect comes, he's talking about the growth and maturity of the church. 
And what he's saying is, is that right now, the church is like a child. We don't have it all figured out. We're not all perfect. So when we're like a child, we're going to speak like a child. We're going to think like a child. We're going to reason like a child. But when we become a man, we'll give up childish ways. When the perfect come, when, when Jesus comes and we're taking up to heaven, we're going to give up childish ways. And that's what he's referring to, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit that will come a time that those go away. And I've used, it's funny, I've used this verse so many times to teach that we should grow individually. And honestly, I'll continue to do so because I think it's valid. But what he's, in context, what he's talking about is contrasting the church now and the kingdom of heaven and the church after Christ's return. And the truth is, is the church right now is growing in maturity and our goal is to obtain maturity in the faith, both individually and collectively as a church. In Ephesians four eleven through 13, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the purpose, is to get to that point. And the reality is, is that it's going to take Jesus coming back to, to top that off, to really understand who we are. And that's what he begins to talk about in the next one. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, for now, while we're children, while the gifts are still here, but then face to face. Then when when Jesus comes back, and now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I love this, this metaphor as he begins to talk it out because particularly if you think back back then, you know, we, we think of mirrors and if you can't see perfectly in a mirror, there's something wrong with your mirror. You know, it's broke. There's something going on. But back then, a mirror was essentially a, a polished piece of metal. And it's kind of like when you look, have anybody ever looked at themselves in like a polished hubcap? Your face is all distorted. It's all, well, some of you guys' face is just distorted. No hubcap's going to fix that. But, but no, you know, you look at it and it looks a little bit different, or especially if it's dirty. And it is, you, can't, you can't really make out the details. You get the gist, but you can't make out the... That's what Paul's saying, is that right now we see like in a, in a, in a dirty mirror. We, we get the gist. We see the shape and the outline and the shadow of things, but we don't have all the details. But one day, we will see like looking face to face with no cloud, nothing in the way, like looking in a, in a mirror that we're used today, a perfect reflection. We'll see who we really are. And there'll be no confusion. He says, because now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Isn't it good that even though we don't know fully, that we are currently fully known? God has no confusion about who we are. God's not waiting for the mirror to clear up to find out, are they really righteous? Are they really holy? Are they really good enough? He's not waiting to figure it out because he's the one that said you are because of his son. He sees clearly who you are. but we're working towards that like he said in ephesian we're growing towards that maturity and paul even said i've not attained it yet and none of us in this room certainly has not either but the truth is we're pressing towards that and at one point we're going to see you know in the twinkling of an eye you're going to see who you really are and you're going to be like man why don't i just live like that what more could have i i have uh, experienced and, and how much more blessing could i've experienced if i would have just lived that way but this is why we have the gifts 
That's what he's talking about when he says these gifts that we have. The reason why we have them is because right now we don't see clearly. We know in part. We don't know fully. And, and, and these gifts are to help us and guide us through that. When, when God gives somebody a word of wisdom, it's to help walk them through that, to see a little bit better. And then he continues on, and we'll go ahead and finish here. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And he's not talking about the, the spiritual gift of faith. He's just talking about the faith that you have, that, 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 that portion of faith that's, that's given to all men and women. It's what we, we trust God with. What he's saying is, is you continue to trust God. And then he goes on and says, hope, abide in hope as well. Hope is, is, what's crazy about hope is, is we see it differently today. The word hope is what it was talked about back then. Hope for, for, for them in that time, it was a sure thing. Hope in Christ was a sure thing. It wasn't like, I hope it rains today. It was a done deal. It was a sure thing. So he said, abide in that hope that you can trust God to do what he said he's going to do. Keep trusting him. But then he goes to say, Abide in love, but the greatest of these is love. And that's because love transcends our time on this earth. The reason why it's the greatest is because it's not going to end. It's not going to stop. Love is eternal. And his love for us gives us eternal life. And our love will continue to be expressed for that eternity. One day, church, our faith is going to be fully realized. One day our hope is going to be fully realized. And the promises of God will be fully realized. But love will continue on even after Jesus comes back or you, you leave this earth, whichever one comes first. We're going to be loving for an eternity. Might as well start now. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our head as we, as we uh, finish the message here.